BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. After doing a few hundred or so trips, the drivers started to sense that something was wrong because we kept picking up these younger women and bringing them to his house or bringing them back. So jokingly, they used to say Epstein was a pedophile. But it was like a joke in the office. It wasn't, you know, nobody knew for sure, but we used to say, oh yeah, what are you doing today? Oh, I gotta go pick up the pedophile. And then, and then all this comes out and it, it was true. Hello and welcome to episode six of Epstein, Devil in the Darkness. I'm your host, Danielle Robay. In previous episodes, we have heard about the circle of wealthy and powerful men that Jeffrey Epstein drew into his world of evil. At the same time, we have heard shocking testimony from several of the teenage girls he exploited and abused. In this episode, we turn our attention to the people who witnessed it all, the men and women who worked for Jeffrey Epstein, forced to keep quiet to keep their jobs. They were immersed in his twisted lifestyle for years. Why didn't they stop his abuses? And why are they speaking out at last? For one thing, they no longer have to live in fear of Epstein and his powerful friends. Right. So I hear now I, that these names are all coming out again and it's bringing up all these memories. You know, and I'm looking back on what happened. That was the reason for me to contact you because, you know, I want to do, I feel, I feel kind of bad that I didn't do something then because, you know, obviously there was something going on and I was not smart enough to see it or to, you know, to, to do anything about it then. But, you know, now that it's all out there, if I could be a small part of helping these, you know, these other now they're women, helping them, get, not so much monetarily, but emotionally and mentally, because I know that that probably left a scar on them. You know, I feel like if I could help them in any way, this is a, partly a way to do that, is to let, get my story out so that if it could by in any means put pieces together, you know, be part of that puzzle, then, you know, it make me feel better now that I know what really happened. Those are the words of Jeffrey Epstein's personal chauffeur of 10 years a man who has never before spoken out about his time with the convicted felon. From behind the wheel, he was a regular witness to a side of his employer that has remained hidden from the rest of the world for so long. I am a professional driver. I drove Jeffrey Epstein, his associates, and his girls over 500 times from 2001 to 2011. 
I am going undercover here because I am afraid for my safety. The deal with the, with being a chauffeur is, is that, you know, you don't say nothing. You don't talk unless somebody talks to you. If they want to talk, then, you you know, you have a conversation. So you kind of keep quiet and you go where you got to go. So he kind of like, I wasn't even in the car as far as he was concerned. He was more interested in the girls and, you know, joking or playing with them and pinching them and on the cheek. But uh, other than that, we I would just take them, drop them off and go. When the girls came out of his apartment, they didn't seem any different than they when they went in. I guess they fixed themselves up, whatever. They were giggling and laughing and joking. His job consisted of bringing Epstein and his entourage, often including Ghislaine Maxwell and unnamed younger women, back and forth from the private Teterboro Airport in New Jersey to Epstein's massive townhouse on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. We would get called to come down. They'd give us the time to be there. We'd wait when the plane landed. They'd open the gates and let us drive on a tarmac. We'd pull up to the uh, plane. The steps come down. He comes out. Jeffrey comes out with, you know, at one time it was with the two girls. You know, they come walk down, they get in the car, we leave. Other times he would come down, uh, he would get in the car, the bags, he'd have all his luggage. It's monogram Louis Vuitton bags all lined up. They loaded into a SUV and they would we would follow each other. There were other times when you'd have five cars outside of the uh, plane. And he, you know, he would get in one and uh, Miss Maxwell and the, and the girls would get in another. And then people I really don't recognize them would get in other cars because it just seemed like he wanted to keep everybody separated. He didn't want anybody like traveling together or so they were everybody was separate. Occasionally, he would be asked to take on jobs that were out of the norm and shrouded in secrecy. One time. I got, we got the call that we should go pick up a, a girl. They didn't say a girl. They said, we got, you got to ride. You got to go to Newark, New Jersey, and pick up this woman named Veronica. I said, okay. Here's the address. They gave me the address. Now, I, I'm from New Jersey. I know the area. And I was like, wow, that's, that's kind of strange that he would want, you know, why would I be picking up someone from that neighborhood to bring to his apartment? You know, it was just didn't make sense. So I went down there and I pulled up and they gave me the apartment number. I went to the door. I caught, the girl came out. It was a young uh, African-American girl. She got in the car. I drove her to East 71st Street. I parked the car and I took, picked her up. I took her to the house. I waited outside. When she got done, she got back in the car and I took her back to her, her apartment in Newark. She seemed a little bit nervous on the way in. But on the way out, she was happy and, you know, she was all talkative and she didn't say anything about him or what happened, but she was, you know, in a better frame of mind. So I guess he must have took care of her pretty good. I don't know. Another of Epstein's staffers was Deidre Stratton, who worked at his 10,000-acre Zorro Ranch near Santa Fe, New Mexico. According to Stratton, the main responsibility of the staff there was to procure his young female guests. He was renowned for chasing the sunshine. So he could just call today and say, we'll be there tomorrow. And they might only be here for three days until the weather turned funky and he would go fly where it was sunny. 
all we were tasked to do is to make sure that we had rather like a stable full of willing massage therapists that were willing to drive out there at a moment's notice. And they would get compensated well for their trouble. And then, of course, Jeffrey um, Gillen would get immediately to the Black Book and try to bring girls from California in that were free to come play at the ranch. And then oftentimes, you know, sometimes they'd go wheels up with them back to New York. It just would depend if they, you know. And that's sort of like what Gillen's job, it seemed to me, was, is to keep him entertained, just like we were supposed to have a list of women that didn't have visible tattoos or piercings that were willing to drive out there to massage him. The wide open deserts of New Mexico afforded Epstein a level of privacy he couldn't have dreamed about in New York. And he definitely took advantage. Here's local photographer Gene Peach. And you don't, unless you know what you're looking for, you don't really see the mansion from the road. This was the place he came out to play cowboy, to ride horses and look at the stars. But then they turned up on all the lights in the mansion and <laughs> couldn't see many stars. But so I was just told by locals that. They always knew when he was there, the place was just flooded with light. Among the very few with access beyond the ranch's gates was Ian Royal, whose father worked in general maintenance on the ranch. He remembers that even as a teenager, he was sworn to secrecy about what he saw there. I couldn't really know his name and I would ask my dad and he's like, I can't tell you, I can't tell you his name. And then I think at one point he could tell me his like first name, but no one really knew. No one had any idea that that was Jeffrey Epstein's ranch except for the people who worked there. And, and that's probably why my dad didn't tell me is because he wouldn't want me to go and say, hey, this, I'm living on this ranch with, and he, it's the owner of it's this. Nancy Soul, who ran the local store, also remembers Epstein's workers having to sign non-disclosure agreements. Everything was so secretive up there. You know, the employees had to sign that they would never disclose any information. You know, it was just all all very secret and you can't get past the gate, you know, <laughs> and, and what have you. So it bothers me that there are people like that, you know, obviously. But I guess based on everything else that we've heard about Epstein and all these other locations, you know, it's, it's upsetting, but it's not surprising that it also occurred out here. I think maybe people move out here because they think that, you know, we're, we're so far away from media and, you know, other things. So, so, so maybe that's why he decided to build up here, you know. Of course, for most people on the outside, Epstein put on a good show, generally hiding the extent of his private perversions. Attorney Alan Dershowitz was friendly with Epstein prior to his conviction in 2008 and visited him at his homes in New York and Palm Beach. He now says that until then, he had no idea about Jeffrey Epstein's abuse of young women. I was in the house. My grandchildren were in his house. My children were in his house. My wife was in his house. And of course, nobody that I know knew he had a private life that involved uh, young women. We saw him with women in their mid-20s, late-20s, 
but never, ever with somebody any even close to uh, being underage. My relationship with him ended the day he was charged. I then became his lawyer. We had an arm's length professional relationship. I didn't want to be friendly with him knowing what I knew. Stratton explains how Epstein's double life continued, even behind closed doors. He was always nice and polite. I don't recall. I mean, if he'd ever yelled at me, I would have probably just melted in a pile. But yeah, he was fine. He was very careful not to do anything terribly lascivious in front of the staff. At that time, it was not at all out in the open. And you didn't see anything. I mean, once in a while, I would see a girl sit on his lap in the kitchen. But that's all. As time went on, there were disturbing clues as to his dark side. It was all this intrigue. From what we were told, the bathroom in his mansion upstairs, that was bulletproof. In the event, he needed a safe room to go to in case the massage was after him. Ian Royal remembers more frightening places than bulletproof bathrooms. Your first floor, you walk down, and then it's stairs that go down into this dark, dark area. So when we'd walk through the basement, it was this, it was the creepiest part because there was no lights. Like, my dad would never turn on any of the lights in the, in the basement for some reason. I remember, like, the paintings I would see weren't on the walls. They were, like, leaning against the walls. And, and like, I do remember one painting that, you know, it was a new it was a new lady that was, you know, laying across, like, a love seat. It looked like one of those old school ones. So when I, you know, when I think about it, I'm like, okay, cool. You know, anyone could have had just, like, a, a new painting, whatever. But... You know, thinking about it more, it could be something else. Once again, it it looks super lavish, whatever that painting was, because it was huge. It was a huge painting. That could be a reason as to why the lights never came on, because maybe my dad knew that there's all these new, new paintings. And once again, my dad is, you know, he's not going to question things. Was this basement the place where Epstein acted out his sickest fantasies? At the time of recording, the Zorro Ranch remains the only one of his American properties not to have been raided by federal agents. So we do not know yet for certain exactly what may have happened there. However, Ian Royal has his suspicions. If there was a place, I think that would be the that would be the place. It would it would just make a lot of sense. It would make a lot of sense if it was in that basement for sure. Because I mean, like I said, looking around anywhere in that house, it was just really like colorful, beautiful, and like super ranchy in that basement. Always just so weird. And I never felt right in that basement. Even beyond New Mexico. His employees lived in fear. His chauffeur describes the chilling atmosphere that followed Epstein around the world. The pilots were afraid of him. You know, they, they were like his wingmen, you know what I mean? The pilots would get in the car and you could see if they, they, they had a bad day or not with Jeffrey because you know their demeanor would say it all because the two main pilots were really nice guys and they were really, you know, very jovial and so if they got in the car and they had like you know you could tell something was wrong then they had a bad day because something happened but uh, they were afraid I guess you know they didn't want to lose their job they didn't want to you know upset him because he was nuts but I mean they flew the plane they knew who was on it they know where they were going flight logs show that dozens of young women and world leaders including Bill Clinton and Prince Andrew flew together on the Lolita Express so what did the pilots know? They very rarely talked about anybody or anything that went on. They talked about Jeffrey and his anger and 
the stupid things that he would make them do as far as personal stuff, like, you know, going to the cleaners or taking the car to Texas or, you know, stuff like that. But they very, they never talked about anything that went on with passengers or with anybody that was on the plane. I never heard them discuss Prince Andrew. They never, I didn't hear them talk about President Clinton. Like I said, they never talked about who was on that plane. They never talked about where they went or who, who was on the plane. Only way I could gauge who was on the plane was the person that I was picking up, you know? And so I, I, they never talked about that kind of stuff. I guess, you know, he must have had him on a tight leash when it came to that kind of thing. I mean, you know, why wouldn't he? David Rogers has since claimed in a court deposition that Prince Andrew had flown on the Lolita Express at least twice, both times in the company of 17-year-old Virginia Roberts, who has said she was loaned to the prince for sex, an accusation the prince himself strongly denies. But for Epstein, to keep his sordid activities from his pilots would have been nearly impossible. The pilots seem to be nice guys. They, you know, they were fun, they were, you know. But looking at it now, you have to say, were they really nice guys? You know, they arranged the trips. They they picked up girls in these places when Epstein was in New York. So, you know, why didn't they come forward sooner? You know, what kind of conscience did they have that they didn't come forward you know, it just goes to show you greed. You know what I mean? They would lose their job, obviously, because when he went to jail the first time, they were out of work for 13 months because he couldn't fly anywhere. So obviously they tried to protect themselves and they didn't care about the girls. I mean, like everybody else, no one wanted to cut their gravy train. Some of those around Jeffrey Epstein claimed to be ignorant of his abuses and others were persuaded to look the other way. But for those who depended on him just to scrape together a living, trying not to think about it all was the only way to survive. And my dad wouldn't question it because it's his boss. Kind of how the way my dad is, he's not going to, you know, he, Jeffrey Epstein is going to be like, I'm going to go do this stuff in, in my mansion. And my dad would be like, oh, cool. And, you know, Epstein wouldn't even be that open about it. He wouldn't be like, I'm going to have some young girls in my mansion. He would probably just be like, yeah, I'm going to be up in my mansion. Don't come to my mansion. And then my dad would be like, okay. Fellow ranch hand, Deidre Stratton, had a similar experience. Because you didn't see anything and nobody ever told you anything, you would think some of those younger women would say, Jesus, creasers, I hate coming out here. It's definitely such a, it's disgusting and, you know, I don't know, but no, they never did. Because everybody was getting paid, don't you see? That's what makes it the most smarmy, is that it's true what they say, that you can buy anything. Then I kick myself later thinking, well, what would I, what should I have done? Or what would I have done had she said, you know, he tried to come on to me sexually or, it's, you know, I don't, I don't know. Hindsight's always twenty twenty, isn't it? Across the country, Epstein's chauffeur feels the same way about his time working for the country's most infamous pedophile. I was just a driver doing my job. I didn't, you know, I didn't. I did what I was told. The boss told me to go do a job. I did it. Who knew that this guy was doing the things he was doing? 
I feel terrible because I wish I could have done something to stop it because, you know, I, I'm angry. You know, it's not these these people, these kids don't, they don't have a chance, you know what I mean? And you, and you get this guy that's, uh, you know, overpowering them and giving them money and, you know, it's just, it's a sad state of affairs. So I came forward to tell my side of the story, the little bit that I have, in hopes that I could help somebody in hopes that this doesn't happen to somebody else, in hopes that the, these girls that are now seeking justice could find something. I choose not to be identified because I, I'm afraid. I'm afraid for my life, I'm afraid for my family, and uh, to be honest with you, I really didn't want to do it at all. But I felt that being a little part of the whole story and being as nobody else is coming forward to say anything, that it was my place to say something now or else I could never live with myself. Hopefully uh, this will help. Next time on Epstein, Devil in the Darkness, on the trail of Ghislaine Maxwell. I believe that Ghislaine knowingly recruited young girls. I believe that she knew what Jeffrey Epstein would do to them. Ghislaine Maxwell essentially was a groomer of young women for Mr. Epstein. I don't think there's a person in the universe who believes Shalene Maxwell is racked with guilt. And whatever her personal beliefs are, whatever her personal morality is, there's nothing there that would keep her from sitting at a table, reading a book, posing for a picture, nothing. These are very cold people. Epstein, Devil in the Darkness, is narrated by me, Danielle Robay, executive produced by Dylan Howard and Melissa Cronin, and is a production of Broad and Water Studios and Endeavor Audio. Executive producers also include Tom Freestone, James Robertson, Andy Tillett, and Robert Dixter. The series is written by Dominic Utton. Reporting by Aaron Tinney and Doug Montero. The series is mixed and engineered by Sean Kravitz and Sam Ada. There is so much more to this story, and you don't want to miss anything, I can assure you. Make sure you subscribe to Epstein, Devil in the Darkness, wherever you get podcasts.